welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler, and this week I'm thrilled to be joined by Amini Fanua, the Olympic swimmer from Tonga, who came out a couple years ago after his first Olympics in London and before his second Olympics in Rio. As I said, he represents the island nation of Tonga, where homosexuality is illegal. Yes, even in 2019, there are plenty of places where it's still illegal, and Omni, an openly gay swimmer, represents Tonga in the Olympics. Representing his home country is a huge part of why he does what he does. He's committed to being a beacon of hope for gay kids in Tonga like him, and working in his home country to build acceptance. In Rio, while he was there competing in the water, he was also a really loud voice in the gay entrapment scheme on Grindr by a straight journalist named Nico Hines. And we get into that, and Almany talks about the incredible effect that what Nico Hines did had on LGBTQ athletes from around the world. It's, it's pretty it's pretty shocking to hear what one journalist was able to do to an entire community in Rio. He's taking aim now at his third Olympics in Tokyo. He wants to be a part of the massive number of out athletes there competing next summer in 2020. As we've said, we predict over 100 out athletes in Tokyo. And he feels like being a part of that and representing a country like Tonga would be a huge step forward. Anyhow, here is my interview with Amini Fonua. Well, I'm thrilled to be joined this week by Amini Fonua, uh, Olympic swimmer, two-time Olympic swimmer. And Amini, I know that you live in the United States now, uh, but you lived in Tonga for, for much of your life. And I know that it's it's illegal to be to be gay there. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Just just living in uh, a country where it's just illegal to be where you are growing up in that. What was that like? How did you cope with that? Um, I had a very loving family, uh, thank goodness. Um, but the culture was very machismo. Um, kind of quite alienating at times. Uh, in Tonga, we have a term, uh, which is kind of the equivalent of the kind of F word, if you will. Um, kind of growing up, I was always kind of called that. And I guess there was a lot of kind of bullying because I wasn't your typical uh, rough and tumble rugby player or boxer. Um, but thankfully I had you know, two parents that were very encouraging of me to be who I was. And, and I think um, I was very lucky to come home to a very loving family. Uh, unfortunately, for a lot of Tongans, they don't really have that. So I think I'm, I grew up with that sort of privilege, thankfully. Over the years, you're a swimmer and you were succeeding on the international scale, uh, international stage. Did, did, did that make it, I don't know, easier for you to be accepted, given that even though you might not have been in the most macho of sports, you're, you're experiencing incredible success for a small country like Tonga? Mm -hmm. um, I think it definitely did. I think it definitely opened people's minds to being a little bit more 
sort of accepting. Um, that's, I guess, the beauty of sports, right, is that it's very universal. There's not one language that is spoken <laughs> that, uh, you know, I, just for example, when you go to the Olympics, everyone's from completely different places and different parts of the world, but everyone celebrates success of sports. And I think um, that definitely came with it a sort of strange athletic privilege that, yeah, if I was successful at a sport, it kind of uh, transcended my sexuality, which I think is a really uh, beautiful thing about sports, really, is that it can uh, bring a lot of people together and it can open and change people's minds. So I definitely think it got a lot more tolerant and a lot more loving when I was a lot more successful at my sport. And so do you think that you are truly changing minds and, and helping to change perceptions of, of gay people in Tonka? I think so. Uh, I definitely think so. I mean, there are still times and, and moments where there's been a little bit of physical intimidation. <laughs> uh, wow. But I, yeah, I, 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 you know, those, those moments I know, thankfully I can run as fast as I can swim <laughs> to get myself out of them. But yeah, I, I do think that sports has been able to change people's perceptions and allow them to be a lot more accepting. Is there a movement afoot in Tonga to try to, to legalize homosexuality or God forbid, same-sex marriage? Right. Yes, there is. Um, there's a great organization called the Lake Dees Association and they you know, do a lot of work at the grassroots level to try and progress human rights. Um, you know, the anti-sodomy laws have been brought in because we just adopted the Commonwealth rule of law in Tonga. And, um, you know, all the rest of the world and the rest of the countries within the British Empire have repealed those laws, but um, they've still kind of stayed on the books. And they're very antiquated. They have never, ever been enforced. Um, so it's just a matter of paperwork to get it shifted and changed. And, you know, after the Olympics in Rio, I went back to Tonga and sat on a government consultation panel to try and talk to legislators and, you know, injunction with the Lake Deeds Association, which we call TLA, um, to try and progress and, and change legislation and enact legislation that would um, finally repeal those really sort of really, I mean, sort of like 19th, 18th century laws that um, are just not enforced, no use for them anymore. Uh, yeah. It's a slow process. We have one person that's really championing the movement in government. So I think we will slowly but surely get there. The first time we had a consultation, there were a lot of protests. Um, just from sort of church leaders, but the second time we had a consultation, there wasn't any um, severe resistance. There weren't any protesters outside. So I do think that the mentality is starting and beginning to change, thankfully. You've represented Tonga twice now at the Olympics in 2012 and 2016. Does it... Did you have mixed? Um, do you have mixed emotions about representing Tonga as 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 first, you know, a, a mostly closeted gay man and then a totally out gay man, or is it something that you want to 
you're proud of and that you want to be that beacon of hope for other people at Tonga? Um, definitely the latter. Um, I was I was out in London, but I wasn't, I guess, publicly out, if you will. And um, sure. yeah, I, I do think that, I don't know. I, I go backwards and forwards thinking maybe what I do wasn't so impactful and isn't so important, but then I get, you know, DMs or, or I get written sort of letters from people kind of encouraging me and saying sort of, you know, within the Pacific altogether, because it is still a regional problem, um, that what I do is important and, and the representation on a global scale has helped it become easier for people to be more accepting of homosexuality and the LGBTQ community. Um, but yeah, it's, it was definitely a difficult thing to reconcile. I would say, you know, the Olympics where I was publicly out and very comfortable with myself was certainly a lot more enjoyable of an experience myself. Um, cause I didn't have to hide or pretend who I was. Um, whereas in London, I think it was, I was out, but I wasn't, I was still quite, um, terrific to like, you know, really be myself, which is yeah. sometimes, uh, quite flamboyant at times. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you're gay, 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 gay. Yeah. I'm as gay as they come. So I think the first time it was definitely, all right, trick with caution and don't, don't make anyone feel uncomfortable. And the second time, I think just with age, you know, 22 versus 26, you're just much more um, comfortable in your skin. And that kind of, I guess, speaks to the whole it gets better movement um, and just speaks to like age and life experience. But um, yeah, I, I do. I personally feel like it was tough. It was tough the first time round, having to kind of uh, police my own behavior, if you will. And then the second time being fully out and kind of totally embracing the experience um, definitely made it a lot more worthwhile. I didn't swim as fast, but, um, you know, so time lucky, God willing, for Tokyo. Well, in, in 2012, you were also the flag bearer for Tonga. Did the people who chose for you to be the flag bearer, did they know you were gay at the time? Um, I believe they did not know. No, <laughs> they didn't know. Um, Do you think they would have made probably, a different choice if they did? Um, I really don't know. That's a good question. I hope not. Um, generally speaking, the way we do it is whoever's had the sort of largest and biggest success in sport will be the one to carry the flag. And I think I was just fortunate because I had won an Oceania title the year before and that kind of carried forward through to the selection process. Um, but there was also a very small team. We only had three athletes. So the next time we went, we had eight. So it was a few more to select from and yeah, I, I'm not sure. That's a good question. I, I, the optimist in me wants to say, yes, they would have still chosen me on merit alone, but you can never really know with these things, especially given how homophobic the country has been historically. So, I, just well, I, know that, say. 
I, I know that in 2012, you almost turned down being the flag bearer. What, what was going through your mind? What was that whole process about? Uh, just the fact that I was competing the very next day. Um, it's a lot of standing, a lot of waiting around, and I just kind of wanted to rest my legs and get a good night's sleep before race day. But, you know, my coach kind of mentioned to me that it was like sort of a really big honor and a big deal. And um, I think it wasn't until afterwards, after that moment had passed, that I realized that it was it was really big and it was quite a, a huge honor. So it's definitely something that I will hold near and dear to my heart and I will never, ever forget. And I'm glad that I did it. Um, and evidently, I swam faster at those Olympics than I did in Rio. So maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe the adrenaline rush of the night before helped with that. Who knows? Well, it's funny we, we talk about you know you being gay and representing Tonga and the flag bearer. At the end of the day, your 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 only choice about about whether to do it or not is really is going to affect my racing because at the end of the day. You're there to race, and, and, and that's why you're there. That's how you're there, and, and, and you're at the end of the day, you're first and foremost, you're an athlete while you're there. Right. That's definitely the priority for sure. Well, since we're talking about flag bearers I, 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 for Tonga, I have to ask you, because in 2016, mm -hmm. four years later, uh, Tonga flag bearers stole the show. Um, uh, a, a, a shirtless athlete who certainly nobody was complaining that he was shirtless. Uh, w w what kind of person is he? Does he? Do you know him? Are you friends with him? Um, yeah, we are friendly towards each other, I suppose. Um, not, not in the same sort of realm or, or social circle, so to speak. He's from a different island. He's from Hapai, which is like, there are 169 different islands in Tonga, so he's from one of the outskirts. But um yeah, he's a Taekwondo athlete and he went to that was his first Olympics. And then I believe he went to uh the Pyongyang for skiing afterwards. And I think he's trying to go for his third Olympics with canoeing. Um but yeah, good guy. Um, viral moment. It was really amazing for our country. I mean, it was just like, like just really good for tourism, really good for getting our name out there. I mean, the Google searches spiked and hit like the millions. Yeah. So I think just that exposure for our country alone was really amazing as well as like the cultural component of it as well. And, you know, it doesn't help that he's very handsome and good looking. <laughs> so, I mean, we were all, uh, very appreciative of the exposure. Well, that's neat that just as another Tongan athlete, you took pride in his moment. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, before he went out there and did it, I knew, I mean, he sort of had kind of dropped hints to us about what he was about to do. And I thought, well, Peter, like, your life is about to change, so I hope you're ready because, you know, these things go viral and they go and they take a kind of world of their own. And he's definitely taken it and, and turned it into, you know, guest show appearances on the Harry Connick Jr. show and like really kind of been a great representation for our country. He's done some amazing things with the UN on climate change, which definitely affects a lot of the nations in the Pacific. So 
you know, it's it's doing a world of good, I think. No, yeah, well, it's great. Well, certainly people 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 hadn't heard of Tonga before. They certainly did after watching him march shirtless down that, that parade. Yeah, that's one way to get people's attention for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, everybody, hang tight. Um, we just have a couple messages we're going to run, and then we'll be right back with Olympic swimmer Amini Fonua. And now we're back. So, uh, Amini, I want to talk about being out at the Olympics. Um, in, in London, you were, t- like I said, you you weren't totally out. You weren't publicly out. But in Rio, you were, and you, and you started talking uh, before we broke, just kind of about the, 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 the differences of, of the experience. How much more fun was Rio being out? Oh, a lot more. A lot more fun. Um, definitely a lot less organized in terms of the committees. Uh, London, very organized. But, and I mean, for me, it was a difference of night and day. Um, I felt very comfortable in myself. I felt very free and open. And um, yeah, it was interesting. Just a lot of, uh, a lot more, a lot richer of an experience for me personally. Um, as in life, being in the closet's never really fun, um, whether it's partial or, or fully. But I just think that that experience was um, very much once in a lifetime. And I feel like maybe that was the reason why I did a second Olympics was because I felt like I couldn't really be my authentic self at my first Olympics. So I really wanted to go as I was and who I really was and enjoy like every part of the experience completely. Being out there and, and you were very out, uh, you were kind of, you know, making some headlines while you were in Rio do the gay athletes find each other? Um, not really, no. Um, but we're hoping to change that in Tokyo. Uh, just with, you know, I think there was an outhouse or like a pride, sorry, an outhouse, that's wrong. A pride <laughs> house, a pride house, that's it. There was a pride house um, for the LGBTQ community in Rio, and I think it might have been the first one. I, I have to fact check that. Maybe there was one in London, but um, every year it gets bigger with the um, the Pride House, and they're trying very hard to recreate that in Tokyo. And I hope that they do. I think that it would be really amazing because I think it would sort of serve as a safe space for a lot of the you know out out athletes and maybe partial athletes that could have a little bit more encouragement. I mean. Just having a safe space for people to go to meet other, you know, gay athletes or you know, lesbian athletes, what have you. I mean, it, it would just be really amazing to have somewhere for all of the athletes that are part of the community to meet each other. And I think it will, you know, it's only growing in numbers, the amount of out athletes that compete at the Olympics. Yeah. And I mean, I think we had a conversation about it earlier, you know, it's, we're expecting over a hundred out athletes, um, which is still small. I mean, when you're a, a number of 10,000, a hundred seems really small, but I think, you know, you just have to keep the wider picture and sort of perspective that it's yeah. only going to grow and get bigger and better. And hopefully that will, 
you know, allow people to feel more welcome to participate in sports and to come to these events and to compete at the highest level. Well, you, you were talking before about Pride House and safe spaces, and I imagine one of the safe spaces people would assume would be, uh, you know, dating apps like Grindr. But in Rio, there was a, a story that broke, um, and, and, and you really jumped into it, where a Daily Beast uh, writer by the name of Nico Hines went on to Grindr and was essentially entrapping gay athletes from around the world, and then writing about them and describing them in detail uh, in an article. This guy is a straight guy. On the ground in Rio, as this was going on, as this was breaking, what were you thinking and feeling? And, and as you talked to other athletes, what were they thinking and feeling? Um, I mean, it was enraging. You know, it, was, it felt like such a, a violation of privacy. Um, yeah, it was it was a mixture of emotions, but I think the first one was certainly rage. I remember I was like coming back from, you know, the beach of Ipanema post eight, which has got a huge gay community there, and I was just feeling so in my element. You know, I'm a huge beach boy, and I was just part of you know coming from a place where we just felt so welcomed, and then to have something like this happen, it was just really sad because you know there, there were multiple levels to it. I mean, we could bring in the privilege component of being heterosexual and preying on, you know, gay athletes, gay male athletes specifically. Um, it's just, it was really gross and, and it seemed very exploitive. And yeah, it was, it was a shame because a lot of, you know, the community that, the very limited community that I got to meet was through, you know, gay dating at Flight Grinder And you know, unfortunately, of the few athletes that I'd met on the app, they deleted it. And of course, thankfully, we, you know, swapped WhatsApp numbers or what have you. But even on those sort of the communication they had with other athletes through technology was that, oh, we can't we can't use this app anymore. And it just felt very alienating. It was it was like, OK, here we are at the, you know, forefront here we are finally having more gay athletes than ever before and everybody's jumping back in the closet or everyone's trying to make themselves unknown. And the sense of community was lost, I think, in that very moment. And I think that's what made me just really upset, um, especially given the fact that a lot of the athletes that were described in great detail were from, you know, places where it was still, you know, deathly homophobic. You know, a lot of those athletes, when you're, supposed to be concentrating on the biggest sporting event of your life and you're now worrying about how many people read a stupid article that could potentially get you, you know, death threats or killed or physical violence when you go back home. I think that was like a very real threat to a lot of them. So that was sad. And I think for me, I'm always like very aware of my privilege. Like, can I speak on these issues? I, I feel like it's only best to speak about issues when they directly pertain to you. And then, you know, thinking about how it is still illegal to be Tonga and what, how I would have felt like if I had not been out and this, you know, my name or my description had found its way onto an international news outlet, you know, just kind of putting myself in those shoes and, well, can I speak about this? Can I not? And 
I'm glad that I did because the story was finally retracted. And, you know, apart from P6 and Sochi, I think it was the first time that the IOC had ever really acknowledged the, uh, the LGBTQ community at the Olympics with, you know, revoking the journalistic license and, you know, condemning the article. It happened about a week too late. And as you know, with social media these days, a week can feel like a century. Um, But we're just glad that it happened. And we're glad that, you know, the IOC did the right thing. Well, it's, it's, it's really sad to hear that, you know, um, that you saw the community on, on Grindr and social apps kind of collapse after this as people were just deleting their profiles and deleting the app because they, they really were scared. Yeah. They really, really were scared and they were very much, um, I don't know. It just, yeah, it, it was a sense of community lost. And, um, it, it, it went from feeling like, oh, wow, I have a sense of camaraderie with all my fellow athletes, and there are a few of us here, even if there aren't that many, to feeling like there were none at all. And um, it was just really sad. And, you know, hopefully we will all learn from this experience (laughs) moving forward, and um, hopefully there'll be no more of this kind of uh, exploitive, sensationalized stories about, you know, the sex lives of athletes. Cause I mean, if you're a public figure, then it's very different, but a lot of them were still not really, you know, it's the closet's a really weird place. Cause sometimes you're, some people are completely out. Some people, it's an ongoing process. Some people that would have been their first time on the app. And that probably would have been the first time they would have felt safe to go on that type of app. Yeah. So yeah, it was a, uh, a low point, but um, well, I think I think it's safe to say that journalists will not be doing that at Tokyo. <laughs> no, the, the lesson no, has been learned. I don't think lesson has been learned for sure. And um, yeah, mm, I don't think he'll be reporting at Tokyo. And hopefully, <laughs> they'll leave all that sex life of athletes alone in the village. I mean, there's. Plenty to write about. I mean, every Olympic cycle, the weeks leading up to, everyone's talking about sex in the village and how many condoms are distributed and how, you know, different countries distribute them different ways. Like in London, it was very much all on the table outside the Olympic village, right? So it was just like, oh, you pick them up on your way in or your way out, very discreet. Um, In Rio, they had like almost like a gumball machine, right? Where you would turn it and it would make a loud noise and then one condom would drop. So everybody knew who was grabbing a condom. Um, And then it got to the point, oh God, this is a terrible story. It got to a point where there was a volunteer refilling the condom sort of machine and an athlete was like, oh, I I need some. And he's like, oh, okay. And gives him like a handful. He's like, no, no, no. I need that whole big jumbo bag of a hundred that you're carrying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow yeah it was yeah i guess I his mean, i guess his events were over i guess yeah evidently given that it has to be um it's really funny the environment of the village completely changes after the first week because about 50 percent of the athletes are done and are doing things like that right like sort of enjoying themselves and enjoying the sights and sounds and maybe each other. Um, 
but yeah, the other half is still kind of focusing on their events. So it's it's a very interesting environment. It's nothing quite like it, really. What are your plans for 2020? Do you, do you plan or hope to dive back into that environment in Tokyo? Definitely. I mean, I you know, I would like to go back and compete. Uh, Rio was not the the best competition for me. Um, unfortunately, a lot of my preparation was hindered. Um, I just got sick leading up to the event for months, unfortunately. But yeah, I think I would like to have one final crack and one final punch at the um, the old bang, if you will. And I hope to go. At the moment, it's just a matter of funding because it's, you know, swimming, while there's a lot changing in the sport, um, we've got more swim leagues and more professional kind of money-making opportunities. Um, it's still kind of difficult to get something off the ground. So I'm definitely probably going to have to either do a GoFundMe or Indiegogo. But uh, yeah, I just, for me, it's always been about kind of broadening people's minds and trying to progress equality and human rights through um, the spirit of sport. And I think, you know, if people can still, you know, find merit in that or, or if people are still thinking that that is important, then I'll, I'll continue to do it. I still think that it's important and I believe that it, you know, others do too. So I definitely hope to, you know, go to Tokyo and to swim well this time. Um, and, you know, hopefully this time stay out of trouble. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> what's the, what's the, you, say, you say you need to raise money. What's, what's like the personal price tag on, 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 on the, the training and the travel and everything put together? What, 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 do, you have to, what do you have to raise? What, what does it cost you? I mean, to do it properly, I'm probably looking at around like thirty thousand, thirty k is probably, and that's like not traveling much at all. That's really just seeing one spot training, and I mean, luckily for me, I um, I my swim club kind of looks after my access to a pool and a gym. But the other resources, I mean, for me, it's just about, like, if I want to do it, I want to do it right. And that's just taking into account all of the sort of recovery and refuel. I mean, I eat a lot of food when I'm training. So that budget is, <laughs> a lot of it is <laughs> right. food. Um, but it would be things like, you know, getting, a, a, you know, seeing an acupuncturist once a week to make sure that, you know, my injuries are staying at bay and, getting, you know, a masseuse once a week um, to flush out all the sort of lactic acid from workouts um, and just getting access to sort of, uh, you know, great coaching. You know, good coaches aren't cheap. Um, so to work with people that are um, very knowledgeable, obviously costs. Uh, but that's kind of, you know, that's my struggle as an athlete from Tonga is, Unfortunately, our you know National Olympic Committee uh, doesn't have a huge budget, so a lot of it is self-funding, and that's kind of how it's been for me my entire career has been just finding kind of my own way to get about and doing things. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, it's all been on you know on a shoestring. I, I haven't had access to the you know post-workout recovery, 
um, and all of that other stuff that everybody else might have access to. Sure. But I, I've definitely determined that if I'm going to do it one last time, that I would like to have access to the resources that, you know, the Brits will have and the Aussies will have and, you know, the uh, Americans will have or Team USA will have rather. So yeah. I think that to me is, is kind of what's really important. And um, I'm just connecting with organizations that are like-minded with kind of getting the story out there about what I do and why I still think what I do is important. Um, so obviously Outsports is a great platform because it's all about trying to kind of break down those barriers and, and allow you know, the LGBTQ community to feel a lot more welcome in sports, which is really important because I don't know, I don't know about you, Sid, but I meet a lot of gay men that are completely rejecting of sports. And it's a shame to me because I think, you know, it's, it's entertainment. It's still entertaining. And, and a lot of it is because they aren't quite comfortable with the uh, toxic masculinity and, and all of the kind of, um, machismo components of sport but i don't think that that's any reason to shy away from something if anything i think that's the reason to embrace it and enjoy it even more and i think you know with my swimming i've tried really hard to go into places where maybe i haven't originally been completely embraced and leaving there feeling embraced well, I think that it's, it's it's not it's not just gay men who reject sports. I think I think a lot of people reject sports. Men reject sports. I mean, in the United States, only about thirty percent of the people consider themselves sports fans. So, I think I think it's 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 easy to say, okay, men hate sports, but uh, you know, I know a, a lot of them who who love and embrace sports. That's fascinating. That's yeah. my theory after twenty years of out sports. Um, yeah, but. <laughs> but no, 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 that's you know, really interesting. Only thirty percent, and that's yeah, it's like, about thirty percent. Wow, and still it manages to be like a billion-dollar industry on so many different professions. Like, I mean, just like the NBA is huge, the NFL is huge, the you know, uh, baseball is huge. Yeah, well, it's still a cultural phenomenon. But um, and, and listen, having people view in sports are super important particularly representing places like Tonga. So we want to support you however we can. So just, you know, let us know when you have, if you do have a GoFundMe page or, uh, or whatever it is, or however, you know, any, um, any, uh, any programs that you're, that you, that you want to uh, get some visibility for. Um, uh, but I'm running out of time right now. So I always end with two questions. You ready for right. the two questions? Yeah. Who's an Olympian who particularly inspired you? Probably from your childhood or, you know, even even somebody recent. Oh my god, Michael Phelps, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, the legend, the man, the legend himself. Um I've always found his sort of journey and his story very, very fascinating. Um even, you know, I mean he's the most decorated Olympian of all time. And it's so corny and cheesy to say, but I think, you know, we, he, yeah, just the fact that he went to his first Olympics when he was 15 and then yeah. just missed out on a medal, right? Like 15 and to get a you know, fourth place, you can really see that that kind of fueled him to have a great meet in 2004 where he won more in Athens. And then obviously 
the eight gold medals in 2008, which is, you know, still something I don't, I mean, I don't, I didn't think that he was going to do it and he pulled it off. Um, you know, that it was very close. Kind of it was very close. A couple of races, the hunter fly and that four by 100 freestyle relay were just, I mean, I remember sitting as a freshman in college watching that and just losing my mind because I, I, <laughs> I, I, I really didn't think he won that hundred fly. I really thought he'd come second, but, but I mean, just, he's so exciting to watch and the dedication and the commitment. And I think that that's kind of the story of the Olympics. You know, you have your first and then you become hungry to go to a second. Right. And then hopefully if you go to a third, you, you sort of get, you sort of get, um, you know, you get better as you go along. And I think he ended sure. up at five, five different Olympics, right? 2004, yeah. like 2004, eight, 12, and then he finished on 16. And it's impressive. Know, 22 medals. That's, that's really impressive. Twenty-two <laughs> more than so. I have. Uh, the other question: <laughs> the, the the name of the the podcast is uh, Five Rings to Rule Them All," which which comes from uh, another one of my childhood obsessions, Lord of the Rings. Are you a Lord of the Rings fan at all? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. Okay, so who's your favorite character? Oh. Oh. mm. That's a good question. I would say... Uh, maybe Galadriel. <laughs> <laughs> of course, a, 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 a wonderful course, choice. Right? A, a, right. a, a troublemaking uh, a white witch, essentially. Pretty much, yeah. Alfish, Kislunchet <laughs> does a brilliant monologue in the first one that's still yeah. memorable to me. Um, but just it would have to be her or maybe even Legolas. I liked the owls in Lord of the Rings. I just thought they were like very light footed and um, really kind of compelling to watch on the screen. I haven't read the books though. They look, I mean, yeah, the the books are great. The movies are awesome, but I think Galadriel is a great pick. Um, I go with that one. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Well, that is all, that is all the time I have. Um, I really appreciate you joining us and sharing your experiences representing Tonga and hopefully giving our audience just a, a little insight into, um, you know, life outside the U.S. for, for LGBTQ people. So thank you so much. And if we can do anything for you as you head into 2020, please do let us know. We'll be tracking Amini's progress toward the summer games over the next six to eight months on Outsports. So definitely be checking the website for that. And come back next week as we talk to Olympic hopeful Nikki Hiltz. She is a runner who is in a relationship with another elite runner. And she competed recently at the World Track and Field Championships in Qatar where homosexuality is illegal. She has a lot to say about that. It's a great interview, so we hope you come back next week. Next week.